Hello, and welcome to BJGP Interviews. My name is Nada Khan, and I'm one of the associate editors of the BJGP. Thanks for taking the time to listen to this podcast. In this episode, we talk to Dr. Kitty Worthing, a GP registrar working for the Sheffield Teaching Hospitals Trust, about work she did whilst working in London as an academic clinical foundation doctor and then clinical fellow at Queen Mary University. We're going to discuss her paper uh, titled Reluctance to Register, an Exploration of the Experiences and Perceptions of General Practice Staff in North East London. So, hi Kitty, thank you very much for joining us today to discuss your research. I just wanted to start with asking you a bit about what is the guidance about what people need to register with their GP. They don't actually need any documentation, do they? No, so the guidance has been pretty clear for some years now so kind of since about 2015 it's been very clear and kind of in multiple iterations of guidance about who can register with a GP it's been re-clarified and, and I think a kind of a point has been increasingly made that to register with a GP you don't need any form of documentation so you don't need proof of ID or address in any form. I think the reason it well, one of the reasons it sort of remains an issue is that actually kind of pre-2015, it was kind of acceptable practice to be asking patients for either proof of address or proof of ID when they registered with a GP. And the way that the guidance is written, although it's very clear that it's not reasonable grounds to refuse registration if you can't supply either of those things, it does state that it's reasonable to ask and from my kind of anecdotal experience and the experience in, in this research, lots of practices have a policy where they would always ask everyone for those two pieces of documentation, although I would say that is maybe changing. But yeah, the guidance has been clear that you don't need any form of identification. So you mentioned your own anecdotal experiences in this area. So is that what drove this? Um, so tell us a bit more about what you did and what you decided to do to look at this. Yeah, so kind of many years ago now, uh, I used to work as a clinic support or volunteer as a clinic support worker uh, at with an organisation called Doctors of the World that I'm sure many people listening are familiar with. Um, they're an NGO that supports people in the UK to access healthcare. Um, they support anybody that's having trouble accessing healthcare, but one of the main groups that they uh, end up seeing in their clinic and helping on their phone lines are people who don't have access to documentation, um, usually because of the immigration status, so people who are undocumented. And I, my role in the clinic was to help people to register with the GP. And the way that used to work is we would ring practices and explain that this was someone living in their catchment area who didn't have access to these forms of documents. Would they register them? Uh, and the response was mixed. The response was often, no, that's not policy. Um, even despite kind of being in a position to be able to reiterate um, that policy quite clearly. Um, it's an issue I had no idea about before then, but I was quite shocked by the level of pushback, I suppose. And then I uh, started my GP training um, and I suppose started to understand the issue a little bit from the other side. Uh, but what I really felt was missing was uh, the voice of staff who work in general practice. So it struck me that it didn't really feel like anyone had ever asked what is difficult about the guidance to follow why aren't people following it? Uh, so that's what led me to this research question, really. What I really wanted to look at um, was uh, the uh, admin staff who were registering people who were having that interaction face-to-face. What were they doing? So what was their everyday practice? And how did they feel about 
the guidance and following the guidance. Uh, so the aim of the study wasn't to kind of explicitly answer the question of are they following it or are they not, but to try and understand a little bit more their kind of experience and perspective uh, about the guidance. Coming to the findings, you highlight two main themes about why practice staff are reluctant to register patients without documents. Can you talk us through this? Yeah, so I think the first thing before I come onto the themes is that nearly everybody expressed reluctance to register. And we kind of use that term uh, just to highlight again that we weren't asking a kind of binary, do you register, don't you register question, but uh, only one participant felt comfortable following the guidance and, and kind of two themes engendered why that was. So the first was around kind of burden people without documents. In this study, most participants were speaking about people who were undocumented migrants, were seen as burdensome to the practice for multiple different reasons. Uh, The most common ones were around administrative workload. So it was seen that if somebody came and they didn't have proof of address or ID, their details are more likely to be incorrectly inputted into the system. This means that information goes to the spine and it bounces back uh, and then staff have to spend you know, a significant amount of time trying to recontact that person, re-clarify the correct address, et cetera, et cetera. They were, there are also some kind of more, I suppose, nuanced perceptions about what registering this group of people meant for the practice. So there were financial concerns that generally, if you didn't have access to documentation, whether this is true or not, don't know, but the perception was that this group of people were much more likely to be transient. So they were much more likely to register for a temporary period of time or to register and then to be difficult to contact. And this financially disadvantages practices via the COF system. So you might be able to do someone's blood pressure once, but then to do that follow-up to, to get that uh, payment was difficult. There was a sense that they were more likely to need a translator, that they were more likely to have complex needs, which would increase clinical time. There was a sense that uh, for those people registering with children, it was perhaps difficult to get their vaccination record or to get them up to speed with their vaccinations. And practices that we interviewed that uh, felt like they felt that they registered quite a large um, number of people without documents, felt that they had seen um, impacts on their child vaccination rates, so some reputational damage. And then there was this maybe more difficult to put a finger on sense of we called it safety and responsibility. So this sense of if something, so there are lots of worries about something happening. And these weren't things that had been experienced, but they were very much worst case scenarios. So uh, a what if we registered this person and under a different name, and we therefore didn't receive their previous clinical record, and there was something in that clinical record that we missed, an analogy um, or another kind of safeguarding concern, and that person came to harm, or another person came to harm. And there was this real sense among staff that the blame would fall at the foot of that staff member who'd had that first interaction and hadn't seen proof of ID or registration. The same with using practice address. So kind of standard practice should be that if someone doesn't have an address at all that they can give, that you use the practice address. And participants are very unreassured that there weren't issues around fraud, for example, that person registering a credit card at the practice address. And they very much thought that the guidance didn't address any of those worries and nor had where they'd come into contact with kind of training on the issue. They didn't feel that those fears had been um, addressed. And then onto the second theme, we called the second theme kind of deservedness in the queue, which was trying to illustrate this sense that 
example, about a third of participants, they discuss sort of moral judgments about people who don't have documentation. And, and this is specifically related to where not having access to documentation was seen as a proxy for being undocumented. So not having a valid visa um, or other type of immigration status to remain in the UK. And this was really connected by most participants to a sense of general practice and the wider NHS being underfunded and struggling under a complex workload and somehow those registering without documents not being deserving of NHS resources. Some of the language or perceptions of participants really directly related, uh, reflected, sorry, a lot of that media rhetoric around health tourism and uh, strain on the NHS because of people using it who shouldn't be. So yeah, we spoke in the paper somewhat about the, the sort of hostile environment and this idea that your immigration status um, determines whether you're eligible for public services being quite present in a lot of the feeling. Um, whether or not that directly influenced practice, it's beyond the scope of the paper to say, but it certainly influenced this kind of feeling of reluctance to register this patient group. That's really interesting. So you mentioned about a lack of working knowledge of the guidance, which is one aspect of it, but then you've picked up on these judgments that practice staff are making about the perceived burden of undocumented people, and then about this deservedness in the queue. And those sound, it feels like some practice staff might be making judgments about who to register or not. And this seems dangerous, especially given that it will unfairly discriminate against vulnerable members of society. Yeah, absolutely. And and we know that it's a kind of cute, it's a really difficult phenomenon to study because it's an interaction that takes place with no record. So someone comes in to register at a GP practice and if they're not registered on the spot, that's never recorded. And I think participants also spoke a little bit about their everyday practice and what seemed to be happening a lot of the time was that there were kind of unnecessary bureaucratic hurdles put in place. So it might be that registration was eventually allowed without kind of formal proof of address or ID, but often people were sent away. Common practice was to send people away to try and find something. And there was this sense that everybody must have some kind of ID. And if not, that was somehow a flag that you were perhaps untrustworthy in some way. And, and so people would be sent away to get a letter from a friend to find a phone bill and of course, no participants had any idea whether those people came back. And I think for those of us that have worked on the other side with people trying to register, those people don't come back because they're often very scared about registering with a GP for exactly those reasons. And they have kind of legitimate concerns about providing documentation and what that might mean for their immigration status going forward. And I think what was interesting was that there wasn't that kind of judgments or those barriers that were put in place perhaps weren't done explicitly intentionally but they weren't they weren't generally driven out of not knowing so most people knew that you didn't have to ask for guidance uh, for documentation but they weren't comfortable with doing so mm. so do you think that the guidance is clear enough or do you think that it's a training issue or as you say do you think it's more just this reluctance despite the knowledge so most participants interestingly felt that the guidance was unclear they felt that they'd you know seen recent guidance that it wasn't clear I think as an outsider it, it seems on, on first read or on summary it seems clear clear that you don't need documents but then later on it says a practice may want to ask for ID if there's a need to assure that someone is who they say they are and that line was directly I wouldn't say it was quoted but that line was repeated by participants that 
they sometimes need to know that someone is who they say they are, although it, it wasn't necessarily clear to me what those scenarios were. And I think what the guidance does is it introduces doubts for people doing registration that there are some scenarios that are somehow different and where they somehow have a responsibility to check people's identity. So I think there is certainly room for clarity in the guidance. We know that it's a huge problem. My feeling from this work, um, and in some uh, in some interviews and focus groups, we did touch on solutions and kind of spoke a little bit about training. My feeling is that this, what training often does is just tells people why someone might not have documents and what the guidance is. And that's not really meeting them where the problem is. So I think there's a need outside of training to, to really answer the worries of staff and whether that's NHS England or that's GPs or uh, CCGs someone I think needs to remove that feeling of responsibility from staff and answer clearly their kind of technical worries that are quite specific um, and I'm sure will be different practice to practice. So I think you've touched upon some of the implications for practice so you mentioned about making training more effective in terms of identifying where the problem is rather than just telling people this is what you need to do. But do you have any um, advice based on this project or your previous work in this area about what practices should be doing? And can you tell us more about what these findings mean for general practice? Yeah, so I suppose there's there's kind of existing schemes that lots of practices have signed up to. So safe surgeries being the kind of big one, which lots of practices signed up to. It's run by Doctors of the World and it's a kind of it's a pledge, I suppose, to make your surgery a safe space for those who might be worried about registration. So it's about not asking for documentation, it's about ensuring appropriate translation. And it's really just about being mindful of all of the kind of myriad of barriers that groups without documentation might face. And there's kind of training attached to that. I think um, what was another interesting finding of the study where practice managers, uh, in some practices, it was quite obvious that there was a difference in everyday practice that was going on at the at the front desk and what practice managers thought was going on. And again, completely anecdotally, I, I've experienced it was similar again at GP level. So I think um, sometimes what the partners think is happening or, or what is practice policy isn't happening. And I think the kind of broader theoretical background of the study drew a lot on somebody called Lipsky, who um, developed a theory called street level bureaucrats, which basically looks at this difference between practice policy as it is written and as it, as it is enacted on the ground um, and kind of talks about actually those who register or do other tasks like that are rewriting policy often on the ground. So what you think is happening isn't isn't the reality. So I think one really useful thing is for practices in their practice meeting or to really sit down and hash out, not just repeating the policy, reminding people, but what happens when someone comes in without this, what is said. Some participants, um, even those who felt that not everybody should be registered, really felt that it would be useful to entirely scrap asking for documentation. Some staff expressed that it was quite embarrassing to ask for proof of address and ID. And then if the person said, oh, I don't have it, say, well, you don't actually need it because it just felt really strange to then ask. So I think staff have plenty of ideas about how how to kind of move forward, some of which include things like just stopping asking. So I suppose there's conversations to be had at practice level, um, but making the space to have those really meaningfully and work out exactly what is happening. Or is everyone on the same page? I think it's one thing that I hadn't really thought about was 
the fact that it's difficult to capture data on this because if someone isn't registered, that's not recorded. So I think that's an important point to highlight that we're likely hugely underestimating this as as an issue. Absolutely. And I think to me, one kind of simple solution is to, to implement a policy where no one leaves the building without being registered. So I think one of the difficult things that happens that perhaps is, is no one's fault is that someone is asked if they have ID and proof of address, they don't. And then the person says, well, can you bring some back with you? And that person says yes, and they leave. And to them, that interaction is often really terrifying and they don't have ID and they're really worried about being able to access public services. And so they just say yes, and they're never going to come back to that practice. And they've felt that and understood that as that they can't register. Whereas actually that person has just experienced the person that's registering has experienced it as oh well I'm just you know sort of following the guidance that says that I can't ask but I can't refuse and they may be planning to register that person if they return but there's not much um, planning or thought that goes into whether they would or not so I think one sort of easy solution is that whatever the scenario whatever that person brings with them they're registered on the spot and perhaps they bring you know documents in the next day if they have them but but that they don't you know, that no one leaves without being registered. Yeah, I think that's a really strong message of make sure nobody leaves without being registered and then sort out the paperwork later if need be. And I think that's a key a key, key message, I think, from this paper um, and our, our discussion. Mm-hmm. I think this project, as you said, has highlighted a gap in our knowledge of what happens on the ground. I think that's really valuable research and it's been a really interesting discussion. So thank you very much for that it's been a great chat around your paper and the findings and we've discussed some solid ideas for how practices can deal with this issue and improve registration for people who don't have documents so thank you again kitty and thanks to all of you for listening Uh, kitty's research article can be found on bjgp.org and the show notes and podcast audio can be found at bjgplife.com And if you're keen to engage more with the BJGP, then our research conference is returning on the 31st of March, 2023. The conference website is up and running, so please do visit it at www.bjgp.org forward slash conference for more information on how to register. Thanks again for listening. Bye.